Serverless computing is a technique for deploying applications without an addressable server. A serverless application is running on servers, but the developer does not have access to the server in the traditional sense. The developer is not dealing with IP addresses and configuring instances of their different services to be able to scale, just as higher-level languages like C abstracted away the necessity of a developer to work with assembly code, serverless computing gives a developer more leverage by letting them focus on business logic while a serverless platform takes care of deployment and uptime and auto-scaling and other aspects of cloud computing that are fundamental to every application. Serverless can mean several different things. It can mean back-end-as-a-service products like Firebase, function-as-a-service products like AWS Lambda, and high-level APIs such as Twilio. We've done many different shows on serverless, and if it's a hard topic to understand, you can dig into our back catalog and find some previous episodes about serverless. Today's episode is about Zeit, Z-E-I-T. Zeit is a deployment platform built for serverless development. In Zeit, users model a GitHub repository in terms of the functions within their application. Zeit deploys the code from those functions onto functions as a service and allows you to run your code across all the major cloud providers. Guillermo Rausch is the founder of Zeit, and he joins the show to discuss his vision for the company and the platform as it looks today. Guillermo was previously on the show to discuss Socket.io, an open source tool that he created. We are looking for sponsors for Software Engineering Daily. We reach around 50,000 developers, and you listen to the show. So if people like you are your target demographic for a product you're building, then you can check out softwareengineeringdaily.com slash sponsor, or you can tell your marketing director or somebody in marketing that would help us grow and stay alive and be healthy and successful. We're also conducting a listener survey. So if you have anything that you really hate about Software Engineering Daily, now is the perfect opportunity to fill out the survey and direct your frustrations at us in a constructive fashion. Or if you like the show, then filling out the survey would be much appreciated as well. We're giving away some free swag to people who fill out the survey on a random basis. With that, let's get on with today's episode. Guillermo Rausch, you are the founder of Zeit. Welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thank you. Glad to be here. Zeit is a cloud computing and deployment platform for developers. There are many different kinds of developers these days. There are people at big companies. There's people at small companies. There's people who like to start companies. There's people who have a stable job but want to hack on some side projects. What type of developer is Zeit for? So... The most important thing about Zeit is that it's a serverless deployment platform. I think the beauty of serverless is that it's sort of enabling a developer to only worry about their business logic and not so much about everything that goes on with servers and cloud infrastructure configuration and so on. So I'd say it targets a very generic type of developer that wants to worry only about creating their applications and deploying code to the cloud that executes when web traffic comes in 
So we've seen adoption in anywhere from people that are learning how to code all the way down to the developer at the enterprise that wants to iterate more frequently and still deploy with the highest confidence in scale and security. Tell me about some of the trends in software development that you're noticing that are shaping your decisions around building Zeit. That's a great question, and there are a few very important ones. So one of them is that the standard way that we deploy applications is becoming global. So when you make a now deployment, we automatically configure a CDN layer in front of your deployment. So for example, when you deploy a static website or when you respond with the HTTP cache headers from your deployment, that response will be globally available instantly to any of your visitors. So I think this is interesting because it didn't used to be the case that CDN was a default expectation, right? Like you would say, oh, I need to optimize this or optimize that. I'm going to deploy and then I'm going to add a CDN layer on top. And I think this is a very healthy thing because the internet as a medium is extremely global. And one of the things that we want to do is that when you deploy to our platform, everything is just fast for everyone by default. So that's, I think, one important trend. The other one is we're seeing that front-end developers are the ones that are shaping the decision-making of cloud. So ultimately, the most important thing about anyone, any company is the product that customers interact with. And typically, when you experience a website or a web app, the first things that you're going to be interacting with are the things that a front-end developer worked on. So you go to a website and it might be built with React or Vue. You download an app and it might use React Native or Expo or any technology. And I think what's interesting is our platform is uniquely catering to that kind of developer, the front-end developer that ultimately is the one that is iterating all the time and is shaping the, the future of your product. So we're doing a lot of things for them, like making build processes instantaneous, making it to get started with a React or Vue or Angular application really, really fast. So that's sort of one of the most important things that we've been seeing is the role of the front-end developer is just more important than it's ever been. And we're seeing that also at the enterprise, there's so much more interest in enabling this kind of developer. Just to give you a quick example, we see that a lot of companies are taking their design systems very seriously. They're creating style guides and component galleries that is going to allow them to scale their front-end development. So that, for example, when one team creates a button, another team uses that same button and they don't have to reinvent the button. So this is something that our platform uniquely designs for, this kind of new profile of, of developer and team within the company. Tell me more about the modern interaction between development and design. That's a great question. One of the things that I think has become super interesting and sort of connects to your previous question is the designer, the expectations on, on, uh, on a designer and the sort of the leaders in the design industry have become so much more used to also getting involved with code and being a part of the engineering process as well. And I wrote an article a few years ago called Pure UI that made this argument that the role of the designer and developer were going to converge over time because ultimately you, you, we've all heard the phrase that design is how it works, right? So 
when you think about designing an architecture or designing a uh, software uh, engineering system, design is sort of where it all starts and it's the most important task. Now, when you, we talk about designing for UI, we've, I think a lot of people have mistaken that for like only worrying about aesthetics or pixels. But design is ultimately the most important thing because design is how it works. So we want to do as much as we can to empower that person to do more, to complete applications, to have an insight and decisions into how it all happens, whether something is fast, what the interaction looks like when the network is slow, when the network is failing, all this sort of type of thinking that connects the pixel-oriented thinking and the aesthetic ideas to also the underlying engineering basis. So that's kind of something that motivates us a lot is, you know, let's work on exposing tooling and frameworks uh, such as Next.js, where the designer can not only just think about their application on on an artboard, but also make it come to life with not so much effort. You're mentioning this emphasis on the front-end developer's access and ability to iterate quickly with the deployment tool. So what's the modern interaction between a front-end developer and the back-end developer? Because we still do have back-end code. Yeah, that's an excellent question as well. So there are many ways that you can sort of architect a front-end application. The most popular one that has emerged is this idea that your front-end application consumes a series of API endpoints. So the front-end developer can start by working against an existing API if there's one available. What we see in certain organizations is that they didn't go yet through the process of untangling their front-end from their API or back-end code. So an example of this is You have a PHP script, let's say, that talks directly to MySQL and outputs HTML as a result. So that actually works extremely well because there are no hops and there's no network latency. There is no machinery between going to the source of truth and outputting what the user wants, which is some piece of HTML with some data that the user is interested in. Where that breaks down is that you say, okay, I'm going to create a mobile application now. So how do I access this source of truth? Well, you have to create a new series of uh, backend endpoints that query your data and then output it in a way that the mobile application can use. And the reason that this breaks down is that now you have two sort of co-evolving ways of querying your backend. So most organizations in some format or another are thinking about, okay, let's separate the raw data exposure namely the backend API endpoints from the front-end system that consumes it. And by doing that, we can continue to evolve our front-end independently or even go to more platforms. So you were asking, okay, how does the front-end developer then iterate and deploy? Well, one of the best ways is that this front-end developer will iterate on their React Angular Vue application, and then they'll know that there is some API documentation that they can use to sort of query their data. For a company, that's super important because by having that API, then they can expose the API documentation endpoints to other consumers or third parties that might want to 
build on top of your, of your company's data and API ability. So th this is where we also see the emergence of GraphQL. This is where we see the ability for the front-end developer to worry about their job in the best possible way. Now, what's unique about our platform is that we give the developer also the ability to define some of the functions that go into the backend and even translate the spectrum of client-only rendering and also server rendering, which has a very important advantage when it comes to minimizing latency and increasing access to search engines and so on. So it's this idea that you can build a really, really modern front-end application without making any concessions in terms of performance and scalability for the modern needs. You're describing a lot of trends here. Are the major cloud providers like Amazon Web Services or Azure, are they serving these trends well? I think the main issue with the current infrastructure providers is that there's that idea of like, okay, there is infrastructure and then there's a platform that it can deploy to. The infrastructure primitives tend to be very, very low level. We tend to think about this uh, at our company as a compilation pipeline almost, where the most productivity that you can enable to a developer is when you give them a high level programming language. And that high level programming language tends to compile down to primitives that the computer can understand. And I think that's what we're starting to see in the cloud space where there's in this incredible powerful primitives but without the high-level interface, it's very hard to become productive with them. So there's almost this trade-off between, yeah, you have access to the raw power of the computer. In this case, it's a cloud supercomputer. But you need an interface that is going to make you very productive as well. Because as I said earlier, I think something that we have to be very mindful in our industry is that we all live and die by the experience that we give to the customer. And the customer, the end user only cares about the pixels on the screen, right? They don't care that you use, you know, the latest infrastructure. It's like, you know, 10 layers removed from their life. And I think where we come in is that we are able to elevate all this amazing infrastructure that already exists. And we can give you this high level interface that we know is what's going to enable this great end user interactions. And that's why I was saying that we think we spend a lot of time thinking about front-end developer tooling because we think, okay, what are the patterns that are working really well on the web and on mobile to make really snappy interactions? What's working well to make users happy? And then we work backwards to the technology and we say, okay, what are the right primitives to use from this amazing you know, infrastructure that exists like Google Cloud and Azure and AWS and what is the best experience that we can give to the developer so that they can, without worrying about it, utilize those primitives and serve the end user in the best way possible? Okay, so the idea of a higher level cloud provider with the catering of the catering to these trends that you're talking about, I think that's what you're going for with Zite. Can you talk more about the products that you're building at Zite? Yeah. So the main product that we build is now. It's a platform that enables for you to only give us code. In particular, you give us the build steps of your code, 
and these serverless functions that you can define in any programming language. And then we deploy them automatically for you and we give you a URL back. We deploy them to a CDN so that you don't worry about regions and you don't worry about latency to your end customer. And as I said, you don't configure any servers, you just give us code. So the way that you typically give us, give us code is you install, for example, the GitHub app that connects now to the source code storage and automatically deploys it for every push of your code, for example. So if you think about the day-to-day of your application creation process, the developer pushes code to GitHub, a deployment is automatically made, and then anyone in the team can see in real time the output of that deployment. They can interact with it, QA can test it, the boss can check if it looks good to them. And there's this collaboration that happens around the result of your deployment. So if you think about what GitHub did for code, we're doing for execution of that code. So we really bring it to life, which is a very exciting idea. So that's the main platform, which we call now. And you might recognize it because when you share a link, it, uh, the URL ends in .now.sh. So uh, in addition to this, we create a series of what we call builders to plug in existing frameworks with zero effort. So for example, we have a builder called now slash node. So you can define your code in Node.js and we automatically build it and deploy it for you. Another one of these is Next.js, which is a React framework that builds in all the best practices for production in one package without you worrying about setting up Webpack and setting up the build pipeline and so on. So you can use now slash next to create a next generation React application. So this is sort of how the platform comes to life. And the best thing about it is anyone can write these builders to target any modern stack of technology or framework. So it's very universal in nature. Any application that you've been able to write until now, you can introduce into our platform. We make it serverless, which means you only pay for as much as your application is using. And there's never lock-in or any APIs that have to do specifically with the underlying infrastructure primitives. So when you deploy to now, you only really worry about your framework or application code. And there's never an API call that would say, oh, I'm talking to Azure, oh, I'm talking to Google Cloud, so that you can continue to evolve your code without having to learn all those specific things that could lock you in over the long term. The idea of Zite, of this higher level cloud provider, this is something that was first pursued by Heroku, and Heroku has done a great job at it, although you have just articulated a solution to uh, one of the, the one of my biggest beefs with Heroku, which is that every month I get a bill for a bunch of Heroku projects that I keep running because I I like my tinkering and my projects that nobody uses because somebody someday like I'll make them useful, right? I'll make them them popular and whatnot. But until then, I pay whatever twenty bucks a month for a node or something because it's not quote unquote serverless. One of the features of serverless is that it spins down when you're not using it and you get to just pay for what you actually use. Tell me more about how you accomplish that. That's great insight. Heroku indeed did a great job for what 
today we could call serverful, I suppose, which is when you deploy to Heroku is a server interface. It's not even just managing the servers as machines, but the interface that you give them and they give you is sort of, I'm going to run a process and I'm going to put a server inside. And that server can accumulate towering complexity. Like it just ha- gets bigger and bigger and bigger. So what that hurts you over the long term is with this idea of spinning down and spinning back up really quickly, which is what you just mentioned. The best feature of serverless, in my opinion, is twofold. One is the scale to zero and scale to infinity aspect, right? So if your project is not being accessed, it just adds zero copies of it. And then for every request that happens concurrently, more copies of it are issued. So if you have a traffic spike or you know your website indeed becomes very popular, that's handled very sort of by design. One of the things that enables this is that when you go from zero to one, it has to be very, very fast. And that's where the now platform guides you a lot. I mentioned this idea of the builders and you say, hey, I wanna use Node.js. We do a lot of work under the hood to make sure that when you're spinning up, it's instant. So the end user, once again, we're always thinking about this end user doesn't have to wait around for your application. And the beauty of it is that you end up paying only for those 100 millisecond intervals of compute that are actually being utilized. And think about this from the development process perspective, right? When developers are testing and building and branching off and collaborating on software, they're constantly going to be making deployments. As I said, we make one for every push. So of all of those, we allow you to go back in time and click on any of those links and see what your application was like before. We allow you to do real-time reviews, but then over time, all those deployments just wind down and don't cost you anything. So I think that's one of the most remarkable features because serverless is also helping not just you know lower your cloud spend, not just make you more productive, but it's enabling entire categories of collaboration opportunities that really weren't possible before. I think the objection before would have been, oh my God, I'm going to have so many versions of my application running that I can literally not even imagine this is possible. So uh, that's kind of the most exciting thing about serverless to me. In addition to that, I think there's this idea that you probably have heard of the idea of functions as opposed to servers. And you've probably heard of function as a service and, and so on. The interesting thing about serverless until now came along was you had to rethink everything about how you wrote applications. So before you were saying, oh, I'm going to spin up a node server. And then you had to go and like create, learn about all this Lambda API, for example. And those two things looked really, really different. It's almost like you had to like rethink everything that you knew about software engineering at some point. However, what we realized, and, and you mentioned this idea of the high-level cloud, is that we could compile down to this function primitives. So we can give you all the benefits of serverless without having to re-engineer too much or relearn everything from scratch. So when we give you support for Node.js or even PHP, which we support, it looks exactly like it does when you go to nodejs.org or php.net. So we're really not in the business of inventing new APIs here. We're in the business of abstracting out 
those really innovative technologies and you really don't have to worry about them too much. Let's give a concrete example here. So let's say I'm building a photo sharing app like an Instagram and I've got a mobile client that is just a thin client for taking pictures and looking at my my feed of pictures and then I've got a, a back end that accepts those pictures and does stuff like writing it to a database and maintains the user accounts and followers and stuff. And then you've, of course, got a web client that is somewhat similar to the mobile client. Tell me about the difference between what this deployment would look like in the server full world versus in the Zeit serverless world. Love that question. So the main and most important thing is that the question that I always ask is like, okay, what's the entry point to my application? In the serverful world, it was going to be a file or a process. Let's call it, uh, let's say I'm using Node.js or Go. It was going to be server.go or server.js. When it gets built for production, that one unit is going to contain the information about every single aspect of your application, every single API entry point, every single version of every every API endpoint, even API endpoints that don't get accessed by users anymore, end up all in in that one unit. We can also call that a container if we wanted to. So over time, as you add more API endpoints and more logic to your application, that is gonna just sort of grow infinitely. And there's nothing stopping you. Like, you know, as teams and and people continue to collaborate on, they just add more files and and more dependencies and so on. Node.js developers might be familiar with projects where their package.json file contains 100 dependencies. And then when they run Yarn or NPM install, they just wait and wait and wait until this one server sort of comes to life. And then you start having issues with like boot up time or like, you run node server.js and you wait a long time or your compilation times even get very, very long because you just have everything in one. Is that you really put your API endpoint X in one basket, the server. With now, because we used to write software this way and we learned about all its pitfalls. With now, we took a dramatically different approach. So what we say, first of all, is that we embrace this idea of the monorepo. So you create one repository where your, for example, API project is going to live, or even your API and your front-end project are going to live. So I would start by creating a folder called API, and then inside that I would create subfolders or subfiles for my API endpoints, like images.go for my images reception API endpoint. I would have sessions, users, and all my API endpoints defined there. On another side, I would create a folder, for example, for my web frontend, and I would call it web or www. And inside that, I would put all the files related to, like, let's say I picked view to use to create my frontend. So I would create my app.view file, my package.json for the dependencies of that, and so on. And then I, in my now.json file, which is how you configure your deployments, you say, for this API, when I use Go, for this API, when I use Node, and for my front end, when I use view. And when you deploy, this is the interesting thing that happens. When you run now, or when you run now dev in the future, all these builds are going to happen concurrently 
So we're never again putting all these eggs in one basket. We literally use the cloud to sort of paralyze the process of compiling all of these separate things. Because as I said earlier, from an abstraction perspective, they are separate and independent. But to you, they feel like a cohesive thing. So when you get your now URL back from the deployment process, you can still access everything as a cohesive interface. You can go to your deployment URL and consume your front end. You can go to slash API slash files and you get access to that files entry point that was written in Go. But as you can see, we sort of give you the experience of a monolithic application. But under the hood, we're outputting all these different artifacts that can scale independently. So for example, files of Go ends up becoming a Go function, a serverless function that can scale to zero, scale to infinity, charge you per 100 millisecond. Your www frontend becomes a set of static assets, for example, that get served directly from the CDN. I can even create serverless functions that do dual rendering. So they execute on the back end and they can execute on the front end. So you were mentioning, for example, native. I want to create a native application. There's a very exciting new trend that is being pioneered by Airbnb and others of server rendering native applications, where you go to an entry point and it outputs some markup-like structure that a mobile application can rehydrate. And by doing so, bypass the slow App Store rollout review process and iterate more frequently and, and fix bugs more frequently. So the benefit of this is that now I have my mono repo. I have a global view of the entire evolution of my project. I have my APIs. I have my web frontends. I have my native frontends. They can share assets between them that are shared at compile time. And then all the artifacts that they output are actually independently scalable and have a limited surface for error. So if there's something wrong with one endpoint, it doesn't bring down the rest. So going back to the serverful world, if something happened to your dyno, everything crumbles with it. A bad rollout that impact, that where you messed up, you know, a syntax error, for example, let's say that you somehow let that sneak in, of one, and it happens very frequently in our world, in, into one endpoint, it would only impact that artifact. So it's not even just that you pay less money or that you're more productive because you have this like, single place where all your changes go. The beauty of this is also containing error because we're not perfect and, and errors always happen. And, uh, you know, for a lot of outages that companies experience, you can always trace them back to human error. So this different way of not putting all your eggs in that one server basket sort of solves a lot of problems that we've seen over the past few years in the deployment space. You mentioned in there the idea of the mono repo. This might be new to some people, but the mono repo is actually how Facebook manages much of their code base. It's how Google manages much of their code base. Give a bit of an overview for what the idea of the mono repo means and how how mono repo has been used at successful companies. It's interesting because mono repo in some ways it's very it's very old. If you think about the creation of Git as a repository, right? As a repository for the Linux kernel, the entire Linux kernel project with every single mo- module, whether static or dynamic of the Linux kernel is in one repository. So what happened was over time, 
I think we started as engineers trying to figure out, okay, what are the best ways to organize our code bases? What are the best ways to iterate on our projects and so on? And with systems like GitHub, we got this infinite power to create repositories and it became very cheap to spin up a repository, like just, oh, new project. And there were, there's two paths forward here. Like if you're gonna create your API, you could even have one repository for API endpoint. So we were talking about the file upload or image upload endpoint. I, in one universe, I could go ahead and create API-images and have that be one repository with its own issues, with its own history, and so on. In another universe, I could have what I described earlier. I can have just a folder with subfolders, and it all goes into one repository where issues are tracked, where there's one cohesive deployment story, where when a new developer joins your team, they clone that, and then they run dev, and then they are developing locally. So between these two universes, okay, what are the pros and cons of each approach? As you mentioned, the monorepo, the one where you have only one repository and you just use directories to organize your code, that's been a very successful strategy for companies like Facebook. Similarly, Facebook also thrived in using what I call the original serverless model, which is PHP, which is people only worried about the invocation lifecycle. What I mean by this is that request comes in, code is executed, response goes out, and they, they didn't worry about servers. So we, we think, and after you, having used both over many, many years, we think that the monorepo has very tremendous productivity benefits. As I mentioned, one of them is there's a cohesive development story. You just clone the repo, and there's one script or one instruction run to make everything uh, work locally. Another one that's very interesting that I've come to realize over the years is I like it when my code organization and even my organization as a company reflects what the end user consumes. So this could be a, 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 an entry point, no pun intended, into understanding why the non-monorepo could be flawed on a technical level. Like we always have preferences and we have success stories, but I don't think many have tried to argue why one is technically superior to the other. And I could attempt to explain that in the sense that Let's say that your Instagram clone that you just described succeeds and, and you know, you say, I'm going to open my API to the public and it's going to be called softwareengineeringdailygram.com API. <laughs> <laughs> all right. And I'm going to have all my documentation and I'm going to tell my consumers that it's api.softwareengineeringdailygram.com. When the end user, whether it's a developer or your customer, interfaces and experiences this API, they go to one place, right? They go to one place and then they add a path name and they're accessing a different endpoint. So what you're giving your end user and what you're giving your developer and what you're giving your customer actually has one cohesive shape. But then you arbitrarily decided that that shape was not going to be mirrored in your backend infrastructure and in your code organization. And the reason, and I think you have to have a good argument as to why you would do that. Because when we achieve a symmetry between the output and its underlying backend organization, I think we maintain one cohesive mental model. We maintain one developer workflow model. Like you understand exactly with the same 
you know, when you go and edit your API documentation, you're telling them, hey, there's all these paths. But then when you go back, instead of actually having paths, you have all this code separated into, you know, dozens of repositories. So I think monorepo really is the most natural and cohesive way of mirroring what the end user experiences with how you develop it. And in doing so, I think you just make your life a lot easier. It's not that the other one doesn't work. I think we have to be very clear on this. I think one of the interesting things about our industry on our, and, and 2018 is that we have the engineering resources in a lot of cases, and we have the uh, cloud power to make a lot of different things work. You know, you, you're going to go and meet organizations that made the multi-repo world work really well. But that doesn't mean that it's the optimal way of doing things. And that's why I think it's so important that we that we really reflect on, okay, what's what are the things that result in the less amount of indirection? And I think the monorepo accomplishes that really well. If I'm a developer today, I, I may not have my app architected in the way that is meant for Zeit, because I think in in the ideal world, if I understand correctly, my different functions would be broken up into different files, whereas most people today have their apps, I believe, architected in this singular Node.js file or a couple files, and it's just very big and monolithic. Are you encouraging people to re-architect their application for Zeit, or are you going after new greenfield applications and saying, hey, try out architecting your app this way and it's going to work well. What's the model for getting people to build their applications in in this fashion? That's, that's a great question. So first of all, I want to say the market is already moving in the direction of the multi-entry point world and the cohesion yeah. between what the user accesses ends up being one discrete entry point in your backend. And I think the biggest testament to this is our Next.js React uh, framework has thrived and continues to grow so fast. If you go to nextjs.org and you look at the sizes of the companies and users that are using it, you know, uh, I think some of the biggest, funny enough, Chinese in our proverbs have recently begun adopting it in a very large way, which means a huge percentage of internet users today are experiencing this new way of programming. As I said, they end up experiencing it because they go to, for example, eBay China slash, you know, item. And that I know is going to map all the way down to pages slash item.js, which is how Next.js tells you that you start your project. You define page entry points. You don't define a monolithic server. And the reason that we pioneered this with the web front end is that for the web, it was very, very obvious that we didn't want to ship huge bundles of JS for an entire application. We wanted to break it down, right? Like the famous code splitting and the famous bundling and web packs of the world. Uh, the idea here was like, hey, let's give to the end user only the code that was needed for that discrete page that they were in. The example that I always like to use was at one point in time in every organization, people would always add an extra copy of jQuery to their project to ship it to prod. So it wasn't unusual for us to see that, 
you know, we would go to a website and, oh, it's, it's working slowly. Oh, it's loading three copies of jQuery. And the way that we saw this was, okay, as teams evolve an application, they will always add more and more complexity. How can we solve this for the end user? Okay, let's limit the amount of complexity that the user has to download to the a specific section of the application that they're experiencing. Now, what's interesting about serverless is that we're applying the same exact methodology, but for the backend. So I don't expect this to be very surprising or, or challenging for organizations to adopt because most likely they're already doing code splitting for the front end. So serverless is just code splitting for the back end, and it makes perfect sense. And funny enough, when I was uh, sort of talking to customers and understanding, okay, like, why do you love this methodology of software so much? And why has it made you so successful? Customers like Nike, for example. The answer that I got was not, oh, like, it's super fast, it's super technologically advanced, it's super this or super that. What I would hear is when a developer opens a project, they can just naturally navigate through it. So going back to server.js, when you go to server.js, when you, you open up the file and you start having to learn all these abstractions that the developers added over time, you have to untangle middleware out of it. You have to learn about all this instantiation custom functions that someone wrote over time. Maybe you have to scroll through 300 lines until you find your first API endpoint definition. And then maybe that requires another file in the file system that is an arbitrary location. Whereas in the in this new world that we're proposing, you open the project and mostly you're going to find a, a folder called API that, as I said earlier, it mirrors exactly, or perhaps with a few slight you know uh, differences, how the end user experiences it. So our API, Zydeco slash API slash deployments, has a folder called API and another folder called deployments inside it. So I don't expect organizations to, you know, be very surprised by this. I think there is probably something that they've been eagerly waiting for for many years and it's finally becoming very, very easy to do. And as I said, some programming language communities have been enjoying this work, this way of reasoning about their programs for very long. Like people that have been doing PHP where or similar technologies where the server uh, abstraction is Nginx or Apache and then the developer only worries about the code, they've been thinking this way for, for uh, a long time and they've been very successful with it as well. And for the companies that have already written their server.js and want to like start becoming serverless in a way that is more incremental, we also support uh, wrapping their servers into serverless function. Now, there's going to be caveats. You're not going to enjoy all the benefits that I described earlier. Uh, perhaps your code boot up times are going to be a little slower but it's a, it's a good way of making your first entry point into this world. So the way that we support this is you bring in your server and we uh, at the build uh, step, you say, I want to use now slash node dash server and point it to server.js. And then you're going to get a singular serverless function built that exposes your server. So it's a good way of even learning about what are the, you know, downsides of writing servers in this new world because it might not scale as well over time, but you still get a lot of the benefits like paying for every 100 milliseconds of compute. You start learning about this new way of deploying. New endpoints can be created serverlessly while legacy ones are shipped through the server. That actually works extremely well. Like let's say that before we had this conversation today, you'd already started on 
software engineering daily gram and you had an express server, for example, and it covered, you know, a few API endpoints, you can totally deploy that. And then all your new API endpoints can be singular function entry points. And then you're going to get all the other benefits and migrate uh, sort of incrementally over time. So there's a lot of options for that. And if you go to zyde.co slash docs, we have plenty of documentation, how to approach this world of either going serverless and sort of learning about these new ways, or I have an existing code base, what do I do? Or even for those that are more future oriented, we have an example that we call the monorepo, where we even mix and match several different programming languages for each API endpoint. So we have an API endpoint defined in Python, one in Go and one in Node.js. So you can sort of see how regardless of all these different technologies being involved, the deployment strategy is always the same, is now. You either push to GitHub or, or you uh, run the now command and you get a URL back. Something worth pointing out here that's kind of cool is that in today's world, you can build a cloud provider on top of previous cloud providers and your differentiator can be the design decisions and the developer experience that you're offering to the developers because that's that's what differentiates Zite is I mean there are obviously other cloud providers are doing serverless and you know they have a, a, a wide range of options and you could cobble together something that would feel like Zite on other cloud providers but you are giving an opinionated view so let's go into that Zite architecture uh, take me inside what Zite is built on and, and, and how that architecture looks. That's one of my favorite things to talk about, really, because I've been watching the virtualization and cloud space for many years, right? And we, we started with, you know, I'm going to have a physical computer and I'm going to have a server there. And then we introduced this idea that actually it's better to model it as a VM. Even if I'm going to use the entirety of the hardware's resources, it's better to model it as a VM because it gives me all this portability benefits. And it allows me to swap the operating system that I'm using. You know, I'm not anchored to the hardware decisions. And it allows me to upgrade the hardware without changing uh, you know, my VM and my software configuration. And I think what we're seeing now is that the same is happening to cloud providers. In a way, we're, you know, like what the VM did for hardware, we're doing to cloud infrastructure, because even today, Zite is able to compile down to the primitives of any cloud provider. We use Google Cloud, we use AWS, we use Azure. And the way that you experience it is, as I said, like you were operating on a software level and the cloud providers are the hardware. And you don't want to mess with hardware. You, you want to focus on delivering, creating value for your customers. So that's, uh, that's one of the most important principles here because the way that now is architected allows you to straddle across cloud providers. We make the decisions on your behalf of what's the best primitive to use for your needs from all this wealth of options. We, we've already even migrated on behalf of our users from certain initial decisions of one cloud provider to another one with zero downtime by and save, saving our customers money, saving them time, saving them energy, and getting the best performance. So once again, it's like you were writing your you know cloud VM like EC, what EC2 did to hardware, 
And then we upgraded the machine to be a more powerful Intel processor. But it's even more powerful than that. It's not even just about performance. In a lot of cases, it's about the regulatory landscape. You know, like now can go to places where no one has been. You know, in our in our plans is to go and host the now platform with Alibaba Cloud. Go to regions in India and China that are just not available uniformly across cloud, cloud providers. You know, if you choose Google, you're at Google's peril to wait and go meet customers in a certain region that they're not in yet. So this is really the beauty of this higher level cloud provider, as you mentioned. And there are benefits also in terms of lock-in and APIs because... In the build phase is when we create the artifacts that end up going to a specific cloud providers. But what we give you, and going back to the analogies to the compiler world, when a compiler takes source code, a modern compiler will create an intermediate representation of your source code. And then that intermediate representation of your source code is what's used to generate the machine code and, and run your software. So now it's acting as an intermediate representation. So when you were orchestrating that mono repo with, you know, your APIs in Go and Node and Next.js and Vue and so on, the code is written as the API's mandate for Node, like the Vue code base and, you know, the Go documentation. At build time, we have to convert that into whatever suits each cloud provider the best to make it serverless and to make it the most optimal. And that's even where, you know, you're not even locked in because you just worry about, you know, okay, I'm going to write a builder myself if I want to that changes how the code is written for the end developer. So there's never a situation where you say, oh, you know, shoot, I locked myself in and there's no escape. Um, You can run the code locally. You can... Even we, we're uh, going to announce this soon, we're going to even allow you to package it and deploy it on-premise or on legacy containers if you wanted to. So what we want to make it clear here is that there's a new opportunity that has emerged to really take your code everywhere in the world, despite the boundaries of the underlying infrastructure providers, despite what regions they exist in, in a way where your code is absolutely controlled by you and only abides by the standard compliant APIs uh, and the standard compliant protocols of the web. So take me through what happens when I deploy my app to Zite. Great question. So let's talk about the most simple example that you could ever think of, which is a entry point into your app that you know renders Hello World. So the way that I would start it is I write index.js, and inside, I export a function. So in, in Node.js, you do like module.exports equal function. And then it takes as parameters the request and response objects. So for those that are familiar with, Next, uh, with Node.js, that's the exact same thing as when you would do HTTP create server, and you would pass that function inside. It takes a request object and a response object, and then you can respond. So inside, I would write rest.end, hello world, and I respond with my hello world. So the difference here is that instead of creating a server abstraction, I said module.export. So I'm, I'm going to export my handler, my request handler function. So this is when I think serverless will start making a lot more sense for a lot of people because we all hear about functions and, and the question is like, okay, what do these functions do? And arguably these functions have already existed. 
before we would pass that function as a parameter to create server. Nowadays, we can just say export and expose it. And that's, where, that's what allows your code to interoperate with now. So the next step is in now.json, you say builds and you say source index.js use now slash node. So now slash node is actually just an NPM module that is open source and published to the NPM registry that'll do all the heavy lifting of saying, oh, I have a Node.js function. I want a, an actual serverless function output, which we call a Lambda, to be generated from this. And for example, it'll do the heavy lifting of packaging your code. For example, in addition to index.js in the future, you can have a package.js and you can have yarn.log and, and all that. And that's what this now slash no, node builder is in charge of doing. And the beauty of this is that we've created builders for all the most popular technologies and frameworks, but it's fully open source. Within a week of the release of now 2.0, which introduces concepts of builders, someone had created one for OCaml, for example. Someone has extended, uh, as of yesterday, our PHP one. There's a WordPress one being created, funny enough. So once you defined your now.json and your index.js file, you run now. And, th and that's all you had to do. So when you go to your deployment URL, the function will get executed. Notice that I called it index.js. And, and that was so that when I go to slash, it executes my function. So what's, what's neat about this is that there's, it allows for this like file system-based reasoning. So now say that I want to create a more sophisticated API and I don't want to have a mess of files in my root directory. All I have to do is I create an API folder, I create a users folder inside, and I put my index.js file inside once again. Uh, and I say, I want that to use now slash node in my now.json file. And that's it. When you deploy, you're going to see that, I don't know if you remember from the old days of Apache, that what would happen in that deployment is that you get a directory listing uh, output. It's, it's going to say index off because there's no index to render. And you're going to see an API folder. You're going to click on that API folder, and you're going to see your users folder. And that folder is going to have a special little icon, which is the Lambda icon, which represents a function in, in uh, this branch of mathematics of Lambda calculus. And that Lambda function, instead of just being a, a static file, it's almost like this is a special executable file. So when you go to it, it's going to execute code. So what's, what's be the beauty about serverless, in my mind, is that it really allows for this like file-based reasoning, right? So like it's almost like when you put a, a photo in a CDN, photo.jpg, and the user consumes it, and the browser is in charge of decoding the photo and rendering it as a photo. Now what's happening is that you can output this special Lambda files that we call them, and then when you go to them, they execute code in the cloud nearest to where you're located. So it's a really, really powerful concept the idea that we, we can mix and match static files and these files that execute code on demand and that it's extremely cheap to actually execute them and that they scale infinitely just like photo.jpg scales infinitely in a CDN and that you never worry about. One of the, one of the interesting things here is that I, I always mention to, to the people that I talk to, my friends, when I explain this is when you would put a file into a CDN, you would never set up, you know, monitoring or paging. You would never be awoken, you know, in the middle of the night that your 
photo is down. Like that, that's just a concept that is completely alien. Oh, my asset in a CDN is down because the server is down or, or the cluster is down or, you know, Kubernetes is having an outage or Kubernetes was hacked or whatever. That's just not a concept that even goes through your mind, right? And we're doing the same for code execution because that little Lambda file that can be placed in the CDN doesn't have the room for failure. Even if a server goes down, that little file can be obtained by another server and be executed on demand. Even if the file crashes halfway through execution, it can be trivially retried. It can be re, uh, deployed in other regions if an entire region goes down. So just imagine a world five years from now when everyone in the world is deploying code with the confidence of that CDN serving a file. I just think that we cannot even measure yet what this is going to do for, for the world of, of deploying code throughout the world. And, and really what it's going to do for like us as developers really not worrying as much for some of us that have been, you know, so minded about performance and stability and response times over time to not have to worry about this, to not have to be, you know, on pager duty to sort of response, respond to events that happen as, as, a response, as a result of like our servers crashing and so on is just really, really transformational. And the scalability benefits don't even have to do just with like the computational scalability. This is something that I always like to emphasize. Computational scalability is by and large a solved problem. Even with the server.js, you know, I can put it inside a VM and it can spawn a thousand VMs and it's going to scale. Like there's no discussion there that it's going to scale. But the question is, it is, gonna, is it going to scale at the team level? Is it going to allow people to continue to contribute to a project over time without stepping on, on top of each other, without tests taking forever to run, without boot up times getting out of hand, without build times being super, super long, without trading off the inability for every single push to be deployed instantly. You know, all these things just compound to economic effects that I'm just uh, personally excited, regardless of us having such a bet in this space as a company, I, as an individual, I'm just excited about seeing what this is going to do to the world, you know, five years from now because of this compounding effect that might seem little. I think sometimes it's easy to underestimate them because, you know, ultimately the difference between server.js and index.js is just, you know, a slight abstraction difference, a slight even naming convention, a slight, you know, directory structure <laughs> reorganization. But the compounding effects are, are what gets me excited. I share your excitement over the vision. There are a number of different companies who are pursuing this kind of vision. So you've got Netlify, Firebase to some extent. I think there's one or two others. And you know, I think what the the wind that's at your back, even regardless of competitors, is that there's just a growing number of developers. I think the developers who are coming online, so to speak, today are also very open-minded. They're flexible. They're willing to move from thing to thing. I feel like developers today are, are, are less prone to getting trapped in, oh, I'm a Java developer. That's what I'm going to do the rest of my life. I think they have. A, there's a much more, there's a higher sense of mobility between roles. Now that said, 
it's hard to develop mindshare around an idea, even a good idea in software engineering. There's some extent to which you have to do marketing. You have to reach developers in the right way. You have to evangelize. Now, some products do grow virally, naturally. And I think, you know, I saw, I think it was earlier this week or last week, uh, Spectrum, which was built with Zite, got acquired, which was, I think, was a really good show of support for for your products. And somebody has now built a fully-fledged business that got an exit uh, on top of Zite. So congratulations there. What's your plan for building a following, or is word of mouth working just fine for you? Funny enough, uh, the Spectrum example is just an example of how well word of mouth works because we met their founders originally through conferences where we were just talking about this new way of deploying and they were attracted to our platform and they set everything up on our platform without really any, you know, interaction or special sort of setup or anything. They were just another success story of what can you do when you give people the right tools to build a customer-focused product, right? So the, the business of Spectrum is to connect the world through real-time chat communities and to basically, you know, capture the entire spectrum of communication online. So their business is not in configuring servers. That's what we do. That's what we expose for you. That's what we, exp- we give you as a service. So really, that's the focus of our business right now. That's the focus of our marketing. You know, it's all about providing the customer focus. And, and when I mean customer, I mean the end user. You know, the end user has to have a, an amazing experience on our platform. And as a result, you sort of work your way backwards and say, okay, like, how was this built? What, why was it so successful? Why is it working so well? Why is it so fast? That's what we want to project as a product, as a service. And that's what we, you know, day in and day out obsess about. We don't obsess about, you know, catching the latest trend. We don't obsess about, you know, measuring the number of stars on GitHub, even though our open source products are, you know, some of those that are capturing the mindshare of pretty much every single uh, developer in the world. But we live and die by that sort of customer driven focus. and, And, you know, being the host of excellent applications. So what you're going to see from us in the future is continuing to answer all these needs for production quality applications. So everything from measurement to testing to sort of giving you the full package so that your the next WhatsApp is built on now. That's what we're going after. And we're starting to see early uh, signs of success in this strategy. And we want to double down on this. You know, excellent application hosting is is really what we stand for. Guillermo Rauch, thanks for coming on the show. I I really enjoyed talking to you, and I appreciate the vision for Zite, and I think you're on point. Thank you. Wow.